Morning, saints. Morning, sinners. We're all good. We're all here. Excellent. We're in the process of closing our mini-series of Jesus and with uh, the end of Matthew 12 today. Next week we, is the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, our theme will be God in the Manger based on a, um, a little devotional by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, close to the same title. In the new year, we're actually going to kick off 21 days of prayer and fasting. We have a journal prepared that we're going to be handing out to you. It's going to be three, three to four Sundays of teaching in that realm. And uh, we want to invite you to join us for an incredible spiritual challenge. So I, I was given a book by somebody that, that talks about different jokes that you can sort of tie into all, all different passages of the Bible. It's kind of, kind of interesting. <laughs> So I was going to tell a joke this morning, and then looking, realizing at the, the uh, topic of what we're going at, I was having a very hard time with it. So uh, I don't think I will be tying a joke into with today's life lesson, um, but rather I'd like to pray, then jump right into Scripture. If you're our guest, uh, just welcome to Seoul, and uh, I'm going to prepare you for something. We're going to end very differently today. That's all I'm going to say. So, God, we acknowledge that you are Lord of heaven and earth. And the fact that you even listen to us is more than what we can even bear. I think the fact that you extend to us the privilege of entering into your presence and, and singing over our, uh, our praises to you, however weak they may be at times to you, that you are there and we ask that you would accept them as our best. I thank you, Lord, this morning for the truth that we have sung and the truths that touch us deep within our beings and that remind us that we... Um, that really it's your reality and your kingdom that matters. God, I ask as we study your teachings, um, I ask for those who don't believe in you that, and don't walk with Jesus, that they would in a very supernatural way that you would reach down and grab a hold of them and they would walk out of here different than the way they walked in this morning. That they'd be made aware of the reality that we may not have known about. And for the rest of us who are committed to following you, we, we ask that we, you, we would deal honestly with what's in our hearts, that your spirit would clean us out of all the junk that we've accumulated this past week and that we'd walk in wholeness and in health with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week I mentioned that Matthew 12 is a pivotal chapter um, in the whole book. And it, it shows that the religious right uh, make a serious turn against Jesus and they begin to plot his murder. And so in this last half section of Matthew 12, the, the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders intensifies to the point of their, their complete rejection of him. And, uh, and Jesus now turning around and warning them what that would mean. So after battling regarding the, the Sabbath rules, we left off with Jesus walking into their synagogue and healing a man with a deformed hand. Now, the religious leaders still weren't satisfied. They'd see another miracle. They've been watching Jesus commit all these miracles. They see another miracle. And you have to ask the question, what more does Jesus have to do to convince people to believe in him as the Messiah? And now apparently they're still not finished. He just finishes healing uh, the man with the withers hand. And we pick it up in verse 22. And it says, they brought him now a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him. So th th there's no response at all or no delay. Jesus heals him right away so that he can both talk and see. Now people see what takes place again, and people are astonished and said, could this be the son of David? 
This, this passage is very straightforward. You don't have to really do a whole lot of thinking when you're reading it. It's a, a man who was demon-possessed, brought to Jesus. The effects of the possession is interesting. He was blind, he was mute. And so this man is brought forward. Jesus heals him immediately so that he could see and talk again. Think about that dynamic because it's sort of not even expel, uh, expounded on here in the passage. It's a brief report. It shows that the real point of interest is what's to follow, the teaching what comes up. So the healing takes place, but nothing's really mentioned about it because really it's everything subsequent to this healing is the most important thing. So the people are looking at, at, at what's just taken place and they're absolutely amazed. They're wondering if this could be the son of David, which is the Messiah. Um, the way the words in the text are question, it's put in a question indicates that the people are still not sure of the answer. It doesn't matter what Jesus has to do. It doesn't matter the miracles that he's They're still not sure. Um, they had in their head what the promised Messiah, what the Savior would look like. And obviously, Jesus didn't fit the image. He wasn't that match that, he was looking, that they were looking for. And so this moment of deliverance for this man should have been a time of great rejoicing because now this guy, if you think of it, he can now see the faces of his loved ones and his friends. He can now speak and communicate. Uh, he can see the beauties of nature. He can talk and sing, with, hopefully sing, with everybody else around him. But it's not a time of rejoicing for everybody. As a matter of fact, some people are still angry. Their hard-hearted Pharisees were upset by what Jesus had done. They couldn't deny his miracle, but they can try to explain it away. And this is what they're doing. So it goes on and it says, uh, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow dries out demons. So it doesn't matter what Jesus is doing. They have an excuse for everything. Now, Beelzebub or Satan appears to come from the Old Testament word, um, uh, Beelzebub, which is Lord of the Flies, interesting enough, or Beelzebul. Again, there's some nice, you know, you can take this back to work and tell people what you learned at Soul Sanctuary. Uh, Baal is the Canaanite uh, fertility god, and Zabel means exalted house. So if you start putting it all together, it sort of makes a compound word like um, Lord of Dung or Lord of the Heights or the House or the House of Demons. So this is the implication that's being thrown out there. The point is, all the hearers would have known the references that's being made here. And that's the accusation. They know then that the religious leaders are referring to Jesus as Satan. And the rest of the passage records Jesus' response to the ridiculous charge. And I love the first part here. Because it opens up, it says that Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus knew their thoughts. It's, it's, it's beautiful. He knows exactly what's going on here. And he says to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city, every household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. For it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, interesting. Remember what Jesus has always been preaching. He's been preaching, repent, the kingdom is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. And now he is going on. He's saying the kingdom of God has now come upon you. So Jesus basically says, look, I'm not in collusion with Satan. Rather, I am in collision with him. 
And Satan is in this business of sending evil spirits and not casting them out. And so his argument here is very clear. Any kingdom, any city, any house, anything like that divided against itself is going to fall. And this is also true for Satan's kingdom. For the prince of demon to be casting out demons is absolutely silly because they're actually doing his work when you think about it. So if Jesus is casting out demons, he can't be working for Satan. You don't clean out the guys that are, are doing uh, your job. So Jesus is turning the argument back on them. And the miracle had to be by Satan or by the Spirit of God. And it's illogical to think that it would be by Satan. This is the argument that Jesus is presenting to these people who are trying to discredit him. And he knows full well that he has done all these things by the Spirit of God. And if the Spirit of God has worked, then the kingdom of God has dawned on them, and the King himself, Jesus, is present. And God alone is at work here. And they're not seeing it. And the evidence that God is at work is um, indisputable. They just don't see it. Just show me a miracle. How many times have we found ourselves in that position? God, just show up and show me a miracle. Well, there are miracles recorded all over. You know, they're there. You see them. You can, not just in scripture, but even in modern day, miracles happen. Maybe you haven't seen one in your little world. But they are all over the place, and yet we still have trouble believing. Jesus takes the argument one step further. He says, or again, how can anybody enter a strong man house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, and then he can plunder his house? Again, Jesus had just freed this man from the grip of Satan. So therefore, there's this logical conclusion that Jesus was stronger than Satan. And a stronger man doesn't submit to a weaker man. Obviously, Jesus is not in submission to Satan because he is stronger than him. So the argument, again, is one. It's simple logistics here. And then he draws a line in the sand. And we have made reference to this before. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Something that for for believers to really sit and to ponder on. Whoever is not with me is against me. He continues on. He says, so I'll tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anybody who speaks a, a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And this is absolutely amazing to me. Because I think what happens is we jump to the blasphemy first. right? We get caught up in that. But we all need to hear this, that every sin, every blaspheme will be forgiven. You hear that? Some of us need to hear that. All the horrible things, even the horrible things that the Pharisees said against Jesus can be forgiven. There's only one thing that is unforgivable that we see in Scripture. And so we now come face to face with humankind is called the unpardonable or unforgivable sin. And many people have actually wrestled with the question of this uh, unpardonable sin in every generation. Some have even wondered, you know, have I committed the unpardonable sin and therefore, you know, not be forgiven by God? But before we even answer or handle that question correctly, we need to know the responsibilities that God has given the Holy Spirit today. So we're going to shift, and we're actually going to go now to John. Book of John, chapter 14, it says, I will ask the Father, this is Jesus, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because he neither sees him nor knows him. Now notice that word counselor. In some later translations, you'll find the word comfort. Comforter instead. It's the Greek word paraclete or parakletos, and it means the one who comes alongside. And so in a Greek court 
Um, a paraclete was a witness who came to testify in your defense. It was your lawyer, it was your defense attorney who used their ability to speak on your behalf. That's what a paraclete was. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit comforts us in times of trouble, in times of sorrow. He helps us overcome temptations and to live in a way that we should. He comes alongside us, right? He educates our conscience. This is who the Holy Spirit is. He helps us pray the way that we should. He bears witness to God on our behalf that we we are his children. There's some huge theological ramifications here. And Jesus said two other most important things about the Holy Spirit in John 14. I don't know if you notice when you read it, but he's there. He said that the promised Holy Spirit would be with us forever. It's, he's with us forever. And he also says, though, that the Holy Spirit will not be known by everyone, just by those who choose to accept him, by believers. But even though the, the people of the world, the, the people who aren't Christians, don't know him, Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is working on them. And so in John 16, 8, it says, When he comes, he will come and convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And so that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing today. And I'm convinced that he uses every opportunity possible to convict us of our sins, to call us, hey, you need to be doing the right thing. He calls us to righteousness. He warns us about the judgment to come. And as believers, we have this thing. Some say, well, it's our conscience. No, there's a whole time it's the Holy Spirit. He's coming in and he's doing things. I'll never forget times where people have come into Seoul and even other places of ministry that have been involved in and they would sit in, in, a, in a gathering and whether it was the music, whether it was the preaching or whether it was just times of prayer and silence, they would just start crying and bawling and then they would come up to me and have a conversation afterwards and go, you know, one person said I was shaking, another person said I couldn't stop crying and I would just look at them and that's just the Holy Spirit coming over you and you actually having a reaction to what's going on inside of your heart. You know, we try to, oh, no, it's, it's just emotional. No, it's not. There's a spiritual dynamic in our world that Jesus is talking about that affects us so deeply. And he goes on. And this is what the Holy Spirit did to Governor Felix in, in Acts uh, chapter uh, 24. It's, it's interesting. Felix sends for Paul. And uh, he listened to Paul speak, and Paul spoke about faith in Jesus Christ. And, and as Paul talked on righteousness and self-control and judgment to come, Felix then becomes afraid. Scripture says Felix was afraid and said, that's enough, now you may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. He pushes him away. So something was going on in Felix as Paul was talking, and so he sends him away. He wasn't ready to deal with it. How many times has that happened in our lives, be it believers or unbelievers? God is doing something in our lives, and what do we do? Sometimes we just push away because we're not ready to deal with it. And the Holy Spirit is God's final contact. God's last attempt to reach humankind to save us from our sin. It's the Holy Spirit. He is God's agent in the world today, and he shows us, he reveals to us the great love of the Father and, and offering salvation. It's the Holy Spirit who begins to work from the inside out. And to the Christian, the Holy Spirit is God's great helper. Helping us where we are weak, lifting us up when we fall, comforting us when we're in times of trouble or sorrow, guiding us in a way we ought to go, standing alongside us as a witness to our, in our defense before God on that great judgment day. That will all take place. And now we know what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world today. But what does Jesus mean when he warns that treating the Holy Spirit with blasphemy or contempt cannot be forgiven? Like just what is this unpardonable sin. At the time that Jesus was speaking, the Jews actually had their own teachings regarding the Holy Spirit. 
And according to some Jewish teaching, the Holy Spirit had two supreme functions. That the Holy Spirit brought God's truth to men, and the Spirit was God's instruction in helping people to know God's will. Uh, in that whole process. The second area was the Spirit enabled people to recognize God, God's truth when they saw it. And so God's Spirit works upon the hearts and the minds of, of humankind. And that, they understood that. Therefore, they understood that God's Spirit you know, was both to receive and recognize God's truth and move out on that. So God was speaking to the people. They understood that. But there's a very important principle in life that we should never forget. And that is that what you don't use, you lose. What you don't use, you lose. And this is, principle is true in almost every area. It, it, it's true physically, right? If we cease to use and exercise certain muscles, they'll, they'll weaken, they'll become unusable. Obviously. It's true mentally. Most of us have learned things in school that since then we have completely forgotten. Uh, because why? We haven't used them in years. And, and maybe it was a foreign language or maybe it was how to play a musical instrument. If you try to speak that language or pick up that instrument, you may be in trouble. The knowledge that we once had has long since gone because we don't exercise and make use of it. And it's true morally as well. We can lose our ability to enjoy good, clean fun if we spend a long enough time in seeking our pleasure amongst those things which are soiled or degraded. What we see, what we hear, and, and with what kind of people and pleasures we indulge, indulge ourselves in can really be a matter of life and death. And I'm, th I'm trying to think about what is the best application of that. Have you ever recommended a movie to somebody? Say, hey, you need to see this movie. Have you ever gone so far and maybe invited your, your parents to watch a certain movie with you or somebody who's maybe more religiously... Um, upright than you, if I can put it that way, and say, hey, come watch, this is a great movie. It's a fantastic movie. And then all of a sudden, as the movie's going on, you're horrified by what's being said or what's being shown because your mind, for whatever reason, has blocked it out because we have just become desensitized in our culture. It's funny. I was trying to use a clip, and... Uh, I sent, it, I sent it in, and I said, okay, make sure there, there was an F-bomb in a certain clip. I said, can you make sure you can edit it out? And uh, I want to be able to use this. And so the response was, well, did you not see the other cuss words that were? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> so I'm just going, oh, every time I turn around, I'm living my messages. You know what I'm saying? So you know, we, we can lose the ability to be moved or changed by God's goodness and truth when the Holy Spirit uh, uh, presents it to us. If we constant, consistently shut our eyes and our ears to what God's doing and insist on our own way, and I think this is pivotal, if we continually refuse to listen to the guidance of the scriptures that the scriptures offer us and we turn our backs on the messages which the Holy Spirit brings, if we continue to prefer our own ideas to the ideas uh, that God is seeking to put into our hearts and mind, then in the end, we will come to the stage where not, nothing that the Holy Spirit seeks to do will move or change us in any way. We become hard-hearted. 
And that's the stage where the Pharisees have become in our, in our story here. They had so long been blind and deaf, interesting enough, spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, to the guidance of God's hand that they insisted on their own way for so long. And they had come to the stage where they can't even recognize God's truth and goodness even when they saw it take place before him. They were not convinced. They looked at God's goodness and they actually called it evil. You're casting out demons because you're evil. They looked on the Son of God and they called him a servant of the devil. So what's the sin against the Holy Spirit? What's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's not a single act. All right? Uh, Saying I don't like what the Holy Spirit is doing is not going to send you to hell, so relax. All right? That's not going to happen. It, It doesn't refer to a single act, but it's a continual attitude of rejection. The critical to this passage is the meaning of blasphemy there. The word refers to speaking wickedly or slanderously against God and his nature. And so blasphemy against the spirit is this continual, this deliberate refusal to acknowledge God's power in Jesus Christ. Ongoing rejection of the work of the spirit is a rejection of God himself. The sin against the Holy Spirit is the sin so often and so consistently refusing God that in the end we will no longer even recognize it when it hits us with all force and power. You're just rejecting it. So why should this sin then, if anything, be unforgivable? What makes it so much worse than anything else? Because, you know, Jesus has said everything will be, everything, everything, everything will be forgiven. What an encouraging idea. But there's this one thing that won't be. Well, why? The answer is simple. When somebody reaches that stage, repentance becomes impossible. And if we cannot recognize good when we see it, we can't desire the good. If we don't recognize evil as being evil, we can't be sorry for it or hate it or wish for it to change for the better. If we cannot love the good and hate the evil, then we can't repent. And if we don't repent, we cannot be forgiven because repentance is vital, a vital condition to forgiveness. So there's a whole stage that takes place here. And with that said, most pastors will agree that a person who worries that they've committed the unforgivable sin, really, you haven't. Don't worry about it. It says that your spirit is still in tune. Yeah, maybe you messed up majorly. But the beauty is is that Jesus said everything can be forgiven. The only sin that God is unable to forgive is our own unwillingness to accept forgiveness. Our own unwillingness to accept his forgiveness. And that's the stage the Pharisees had come. They had so long, again, be blind and deaf to God that they just can't recognize it when it hits them in the face. And it's not God who shut them out. It's not God who, who, who you know, did all this. They shut themselves out. They had years of resistance to God, had made them who they were. And I think that's the warning for us in our culture today. Are we sensitive to what God's saying? Are we sensitive to the Holy Spirit? Or are we shutting him out? Is he cramping our style? Is he cramping our culture that we don't want God moving in? And if that's the true way that's going on and we're shutting him out, then we need to be very careful. That's the warning that's being held out there. And it's a dreadful warning when you take a look at it. 
And so we need to pay attention to God's will all of our days. And we, we need to, as believers, we need to be sensitive um, and make sure that our sensitivity is never blunted, so to speak, that our awareness is n- never dimmed, that our spiritual he- hearing never becomes spiritual deafness. It's a law of life that we will only hear what we're listening for, you know, and, and what we have fitted ourselves to hear. Day by day, we need to listen to God's word so that God's voice may become not quieter in our lives until we cannot hear it at all, but clearer until it becomes the one sound which our ears are attuned to all the time. We need to know the voice of God. We need to be sensitive into what he's calling us to do and to be. And then Jesus says, make a tree good by its fruit, it will be good. Or make a tree bad by its fruit, it will be bad. For a tree recognized by its fr- is recognized by its fruit. And then he goes, you brood of vipers. So now he's calling these guys out. How can you who are evil say anything good? Interesting statement. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account. Now, this is interesting. On the day of judgment, for every empty word they have spoken. I hate this verse. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. Uh, I hate this verse wasn't in that translation, it's in mine. And what Jesus says here is huge, and we need to take it seriously. And I want you to look at three very important things in this passage that matters. The first one is our actions. The next one's our character. And the third one's our words. This passage has huge implications when we think about what's taking place in the world of Hollywood and politics, never mind the word workplace, right? Me too. You with me? Huge. First of all, our speech really, it um, identifies us. Our speech identifies us. Jesus says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. tree is recognized by its fruit. I think it's a very simple uh, concept to be grasped. If you see an apple on a tree, what kind of tree is it? It's an apple, right, right. Uh, Okay, so this is audience participation part. If you see a cherry on a tree, what kind of tree is it? (laughs) Awesome. And uh, with those living at home with mom and dad, if you see money on a tree, what kind of tree is it? Uh, No, listen, I need to tell you that tree only exists in your imagination. That's not true. If you see a lemon on a tree, what kind of tree is it? It's a lemon tree. You get the picture. A tree is recognized. It's identified by its fruit. It, what, that comes from within. So how do your actions and speech then identify you? Would your actions and speech identify you as a person who is an encourager? Would they identify you as somebody who's in love with Jesus or in love with people? Would they identify your actions and your speech, identify you as somebody who is in love with the scriptures? Or does your actions and your speech identify you as a person who is a gossip or a liar or a whiner or a complainer? Maybe as somebody who seeks to cause division. Because whether you like it or not, whether you realize it or not, people hear what you say, they watch what you do, they identify you by it. Now the context here is to the non-believer, which is interesting. The context here is the non-believer, but there is a correlation to the believer. If you want to be identified as a follower of Christ, you need to 
act and talk like one. And I'm not saying that we need to learn to throw in these and thous in our language. I'm addressing that the fact of the things that come out of our mouths. If you want to know how to do that, then simply begin to read the book of Proverbs on a devotional basis. Maybe as well as the Gospels and in the, the rest of the scripture because there's tons of stuff that is so understandable and practical as to how we're supposed to act and live and speak as believers. Secondly, our speech reveals our hearts. Jesus continues, he says, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Things that we need to ponder on, things that make us go, hmm, right? If your heart is filled with good, your mouth reflects that. If your heart is filled with bad, your mouth reflects that. And I think it's pretty simple. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, but you're a liar, you need to re-examine whether or not we are actually in love with Jesus, because Jesus wasn't a liar. If you claim to be a follower of Christ and you spread rumors, well, they're prayer requests. No, they're rumors. (laughs) Then you need to re-examine whether or not you're really following Jesus. Those are harsh words. Those are the harsh reality. When we look at this, Jesus didn't spread rumors. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, but you talk about others behind their back, well, then you need to re-examine your life in Christ because Jesus wasn't a backbiter. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, but you're cuss worse than a drunken sailor at Christmas time, then I think you need to check some things out. Now listen, we're all messed up from time to time. I've been guilty of all these things over time, and I'm not proud of it. Again, I've had to, uh, uh, had to repent and ask God for forgiveness. And I don't want to make excuses because there are no excuses. There's no, oh, oh, well, that's just the way I am. Deal with it. No. No, that's not the way you are. Well, in essence, it is. You're a sinful creature. Yes. Hello, sinners. That's the way you are. That's not the way that Christ wants us to be. Or, you know, he's always been that way. You know, I, you see sometimes children being brought up this way by, by their parents. He's all, they've always been that way. That's shameful. That's fine. You know, as parents, our job is to instruct and guide the kids in which way they should go. But if you're an adult, then you have absolutely no excuses for using speech that dishonors God and hurts other people. None. You know it's wrong, and it's up to you to do something about it. And the crazy thing, as you preach this message, and as you sit down, like for me, and write it, you know, I know there's just as many fingers pointing down at me as we think about ourselves sitting there going, you know, this hurts. I don't like this message, but this is what Jesus is doing here. here in, in a, here's the third one. We need to address, the fact, the, the fact that we need to address about our speech from this passage is that our speech will be judged. This is what I hated about this verse, you know? But I tell you, the men have to give an account for the day of judgment for every careless word they've spoken. Ah, these are harsh words. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat anything here. We need to take our words seriously. We, words are better indicators of a person's true character than his or her, you know, uh, than prepared speeches. What are the words that we're using every day? And I think the obvious application of this passage is that we need to work to fill our hearts with good stuff. That's the call, to fill our hearts with good stuff so that our speech will reflect our love for Christ. So here are some steps that you can actually practically take if you're taking notes. 
Prepare your heart for good. Colossians talks about, let your roots grow down into him and draw up nourishment from him so that you'll grow in faith, strong and vigorous in truth that you were taught. Let your lives overflow with thanksgiving for all he has done. Just thankful. Let your lives overflow. In other words, it needs to spill out to those around you. Just start being thankful. Or Ephesians 4 says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and every form of malice. And remember, he's writing to the church here. He's telling us, the church, to get rid of this stuff. Be kind and compassionate to one another. What? Forgiving each other as Christ and God forgave you. Again, the overflow. It affects everybody around us. And this becomes a heart issue. And all these things I've read are dealt with in the heart. We're supposed to get rid of the bad stuff, add the good stuff, compassion and forgiveness. And this prepares our heart to receive the word of God. So why? The, the Holy Spirit begins to work on us and affects us when we go out. In the parable of the sower, Jesus says that the seed is being spread, which is the word of God. And, and those who are able to receive it are able to produce a crop uh, and, uh, with good and noble hearts, right? You can't have a good and noble heart if your heart is filled with rage and anger and bitterness and slander and malice. These things don't nourish the soil. These things poison the soil. And it's no wonder that, you know, when we're filled with this, we tend to speak in ways that dishonor God and hurt other people, even if we claim to be followers of Christ. And I think that that's the very interesting aspect of this passage. Are we claiming to be followers of Christ and our words are like knives and arrows penetrating those around us? It's time for a heart check. It's a hard issue. The next thing we can do is we can hide the Bible in our heart. You know, Psalm 119 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. What does that mean? Well, really, what he's saying is that we need to make the effort in reading and stutter, st studying, <laughs> stuttering, uh, studying and memorizing and meditation of scriptures. And finally, applying the scripture. We need to spend time in the word of God. That is the blueprint of life transformation right there. So as we take that in, it then begins to work around us. And also, we need to practice self-control. We need to train our mouth. Ephesians, again, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. But only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. This is a tough one for me because my mind is constantly moving. And I have this sarcastic wit that I sometimes, I just got to bite my tongue. And, you know, the, and, and, you know it was funny because in our early relationship with, my, with Sharon, you know, I was very sarcastic, very cutting, very, you know, but that was a way of expressing my humor. It got to the point where it wasn't funny anymore. It was just biting. And so we need to practice self-control. And when you become more intentional of what passes out through our lips, then you'll also find yourself becoming more uh, conscious conscious of what's going on in your heart. And as this happens, you can see, uh, or you can even ask the Holy Spirit to begin to do his work in you. So what's coming out of your mouth? What's going on in your heart? Are you allowing him to come and to do an examination? The passage continues then. Some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we, we need to see a sign from you. Okay, they, they, he just healed a guy's shriveled hand. He just set a guy free from demons. And now they're going, we need to see a sign from you. Haven't they had enough? You ever see the movie Jerry Maguire? Okay, Tom Cruise is the main character. He's a bit of quandary. 
He's fired from his old job as a sports agent. He needs to get these new clients. He runs the risk of losing his business, his love interest, whatever. He gets a, you know, a young, talented football player by, played by Cuba, Cuba Gooding Jr. I say Cuba, my kids go crazy all the time. You know, he's a promising prospect. Well, Jerry tries to negotiate on his behalf, but this is what takes place. Watch, watch the screen. Jerry! Yeah, what, what, what can I do for you, Rod? You just tell me, what can I do for you? It's a very personal, very important thing. Hell, it's a family model. Are you ready, Jerry? I'm ready. I just want to make sure you're ready, brother. Here it is. Show me the money. Show you the money. Oh, no, no, you can do better than that, Jerry. I want you to say it with you with me then, brother. Hey, I got Bob Sugar on the other line. I better hear you say it. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Show you the money. Not, not show you. Show me the money. Show me the money. Yeah. Louder. Show me the money. That's it, brother. But you got to yell that stuff. Show me the money. I need to feel you, Jerry. Show me the money. Jerry, you better yell. Show me the money. Show me the money. Congratulations, you're still my agent. This movie comes out, and right away, this, this line, show me the money, enters our culture in a way, and it's saying, honestly, it says this, I just don't want your promises, I want results. What are the results? Show me the money. And it reflects the character of our society, this common attitude that we want, we want proof up front or we ain't buying a thing. You got me? And that's what was going on here. And so Jesus answered, he calls them a wicked and adulterous generation, asks for a sign. Why does he call them a wicked and adulterous? I think that's the question. The adulterer, when you think about it, was one who claimed to be married, yet had intimate relations with somebody else. Here are these people representing God's, God's prophet. Um, and, and again, God's prophets would often come in and call the children of Israel adulterous, right? Uh, in a spiritual sense, because there were people who claimed to be married or having belonged to God, but they practiced and they served and they worshiped other gods. And that's what Jesus is pointing out here to these Pharisees. But none will be given, uh, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will be there three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented of, at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Okay, so this passage is called the sign of Jonah. Um, and sometimes we make the same crazy demands of God as well. You know, how do I know that you're real God? Prove it. Prove it in my life. How can I be sure that I can trust you with my life and my problems? God, God, just give me a sign. You know, open the window when the door should be closed. You know, we, we, we ask for crazy stuff. And these folks had rejected every other sign that Jesus had given them. He's walking through. He's doing miracles. Like there's, there's, They just want one more. Just show us one more. But they're going to have to wait for it. And that's why we get this, what is called the sign of Jonah. 
And just as Jesus says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, three nights, so the Messiah will be in the grave for three days, three nights before rising from the dead. Jonah was not dead, but it was good as dead if God had not intervened, if you don't know the story of Jonah. But let me explain something. For those of you who are type A and you're kind of doing the math in your head and all this other stuff, the expression three days and three nights is an idiom. All right? Any part of a day or of a night was considered a day and night. For example, the same is true for the reckoning of years. If a king came to the throne in the 10th month of the year and died in the 6th month of the next year, he would have reigned for two years. Are you with me? You understand how that goes? So with Jesus' chronology here. If he died on a Friday and was laid in the tomb, that was the first day and night. His being in the tomb Saturday would count as the second day and night. And rising on the Sunday, the third would count as the third day and night. And so it's idiomatic. That's what's, what's going on here. It's not intended to be calculated as a precise 72-hour moment. He's speaking in that way. And so the only sign that Jesus would give as a sign of his own death, burial, and resurrection is what he's talking about. This is my sign. This is all that really matters. It's the core essential of our faith. That's why, in my opinion, um, Easter is so much more important than Christmas. It's the resurrection. This is what Jesus has been pointing to all the time. This is, what, this is the thing that we rely on. It's not always wanting more and more and more. That's, and again, the, the resurrection is the pivotal part of the Christian faith. It's the sign, the death and the resurrection that confirms that Jesus indeed is the Messiah and the Son of God. And this brings up the point that people can't be won over just by miracles. We see this played out in Scripture. We need to point them to the real miracle. The real miracle is Jesus' death and resurrection. He used Jonah and the Ninevites as an example. Uh, Why? Because they were a pagan nation. They were the enemy of Israel. And if they can respond to God and repent, why couldn't the people of this generation, why couldn't their own children of Israel? Then he goes on and begins to describe another pagan. And he says, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. You can read that story in 1 Kings. 1 Kings 10, where Solomon was paid a visit by the queen of the south, possibly Sheba, who challenged his wisdom, but left as a believer of God in in the God that Solomon served. There was a change there. Here was a queen from another land. She wasn't an Israelite. She was a Gentile who had very little information other than the wisdom of God that was in this king. And she came and she wanted to learn and she heard and she was convinced. And her presence in the kingdom will also condemn Israel. For if she could believe what she heard about God's wisdom in Solomon after a brief brief visit, if she could believe with what she had... uh, Uh, interaction with, then why can't they? And this is the point that Jesus is making, that he's far greater than Solomon. And now we come full circle. We come full circle. It says when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through, and it's interesting theology here, or demonology, depending on what you want to do that. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Now remember, this is Jesus talking. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives and it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order, then it goes in and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and they live there, and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. And that's how it will be with this wicked generation. 
The point of the story here is that to cast out an unclean spirit is no lasting value unless, of course, there's, it's possessed, if I use the word possessed, or filled with something else. The clean spirit. The point Jesus is making here is that his presence, his mission has broken the power of evil. He is casting out the demons as evidence that he is sweeping the house. He's putting things in order so that Satan can't break in. And while Jesus is present, uh, while he's around, the whole underworld of evil spirits uh, was under his power. He was able to drive them out. He's able to control them so that he can offer people better things, so to speak. But once Jesus had driven the evil powers away, the interesting aspect is now up to the individual to respond. Do they respond to Jesus in the positive way and invite him to be Lord and Master? Or do they keep it swept clean to do their own thing? Now, if they receive Christ into their lives, they'll be protected from the evil one, right? But if they refuse to believe in Jesus and did not accept him, as Jesus tells the story, we will see that soon see that the house that was swept clean would be inhabited again by more evil forces and they'd be at a further place in life. Just a very interesting picture that's being portrayed here to us. And I think it's an application that we have to take in that when we allow God to sweep our lives clean but we don't get filled with him either by salvation initially or um, a technical term, theological term, subsequent sanctification, right? We then are leaving ourselves open to Satan to return and make things worse before. That's what's going on inside of us. Sometimes we just need a general house cleaning. But then we got to make sure that the master that we let take residence in there is the Holy Spirit who keeps us in tune. You know, sometimes people hear, for instance, you know, the Sermon on the Mountain, and they, oh, I'm going to live like that, I'm going to do my own sort of house cleaning, and, or let's follow the golden rule. Well, what happens now is that we might try to change externally, but it doesn't affect us internally. And we refuse to allow ourselves to be inoculated by Jesus. We can hang around in church. We can hang out with Christians. You can sing the songs. You can learn the lingo on the outside. Uh, and you, know, you can try to pattern yourself. You can do all the rules and regulations. But that's what Jesus was going after with the Pharisees. It was a religious culture. They had everything down. They knew the songs. They knew the scriptures. They, 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 they knew the actions. They knew when to stand up. They knew when to kneel down. They knew the prayers. They knew absolutely everything. They knew the these. They knew the thous. But it was empty on the inside. And what we've realized is that we need to make a personal commitment to Christ to clean the inside. And this is Jesus' message from day one. And now there's a strange tag to the end of the story. It says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Somebody said, your mom and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied, who's my mother and who's my brother's? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For, can you imagine the guys all looking like, who's the mom? I want to know that. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I'm not going to go into this in detail, but we learn in Mark's gospel that the motivation for the family to come and get Jesus is that they thought he was gone crazy and they were going to take charge of him, right? They're going to institutionalize him. 
And you, know, you got to think about it. If your brother was going around saying he was God, you would think he's nuts too. So that's what was going on here. And so Jesus reacts by saying several things. And first he says our spiritual relationships are just, just as important as our physical ones. He says that. And you can't, though, let your family influence whether or not you're about to serve God. It doesn't mean you have a license to be mean to your family either. Jesus criticized the religious leaders for not honoring their parents. And you remember when Jesus is on the cross, while he is dying, he's concerned for his mother. And he made sure that his mother was going to be cared for while he was dying. And so what Jesus is doing here now is he's beginning to pave a new way for a new family, a new community of people who will have God as their father. And it's moving away from the temple into who Jesus is as Savior and Messiah. So what's the takeaway this morning? Well, the takeaway is interesting. I don't think it's a real surprise here that uh, you needed to hear and I need to hear that our speech impacts how others see us. Our speech impacts how others see us. And it's not going to be a surprise for you to hear that your speech reflects your love and your allegiance to Christ either. If you testify yourself as a believer. And I think it's something we all need to be always made aware of and also practice. Or maybe even this morning we need to do some personal house cleaning. But what I want to do today is actually leave you with something very positive. You might be sitting here today and you're feeling maybe that your speech hasn't been all that good and that you're guilty of some of the stuff that I've mentioned. And I've mentioned that and your heart is heavy. Let me just say that that's the good news. That's the good news that forgiveness is available to you at all times. The Spirit is talking to us. And you can call out unto God this morning for forgiveness. Why? Because he promises to give it. Everything will be forgiven. And if you're feeling that, well, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. No, you're there. God is speaking to you. And if you're serious about it, he's ready to do something in your heart beginning right now. But you need to take the next step. And that's up to you. He's taken the first step by pointing out something in you that you need to deal with. The next step is for you and I to say to God, God, you're right. That's sin. Will you please forgive me? Help me to become a person whose heart is right and who talks like it. And then what we need to do is we, we need to, starting today, to become serious about doing something that's tangible. How is that going to change you? If you want to talk further about this and explore this, contact me via email. I, just go on the website, email me. Or, you know, we can meet after the gathering if you want to talk just a little bit further. I'd love to direct people in the next step in this whole process of who Jesus is and how he affects us and, and where we go. But the invitation that's being preached here by Jesus is one that's for all of us. The fact of the matter is we can all use a checkup on this one, Right? Right? going to end differently as I said very different normally I would pray we do the blessing and by the way I, I love the blessing aspect of our gathering I miss it when I visit other churches and it's not there but we're going to do a special blessing today and, and starting uh, starting today this is how we're going to close each Sunday with the series of Advent you with me so I've shared this blessing and portions of it with you before, but now it's also in the form of the song. And it's taken from the, the, uh, the prayer, uh, the breastplate prayer of St. Patrick. And again, when you, when you look at it, it's, it's actually, this is just a portion of it. It's St. Patrick's breastplate prayer. It's huge. But uh, I thought it was a great prayer for our church to sing. 
It's easy to learn, and it's, it's both a prayer and a blessing mixed together. And if you didn't know about little uh, St. Patrick, when he was young, he was captured during a raiding party. He was taken to Ireland from Britain, and there he was a slave, and his job was to herd and to tend sheep. Um, during that time, Ireland was the, the, the land of the Druid and the pagans, and he learned the language. He learned the, the practices of the people that held him. Um, he, uh, his captivity lasted until he was about 20. Then he escaped, and he left. He went back to Britain, and uh, he had a dream from God, um, which actually told him to uh, leave Ireland by going to, to the coast. There he found some sailors who took him back to Britain. He was reunited with his family. While he was there, he had another dream where Ireland was calling him back. So he went into the priesthood and he began to study in the priesthood and he was an ordained bishop and he, then he was sent back to Ireland. Uh, he arrived in Ireland on March 25th, 433. Uh, he began to preach the gospel throughout all of Ireland. He converted many people. Um, he and his disciples preached. They con supposedly converted thousands. They began to build churches all over the country. He was there for 40 years. He died March 17th, right? Your birthday. Um, happy birthday to you. 461. So he's credited with writing which is called the Breastplate Prayer. Now the band's going to sing it for you and uh, we're going to invite you to join in in both singing a prayer over yourself as well as the blessing. It's a little different, I know, but it's beautiful, so I just need you to bear with me. And uh, uh, we're going to start with the blessing. We're going to move into the prayer. At some point, I'll invite you to stand. But just let the words, sing the words over yourself. You with me? Go ahead, Josh.
As I go Hand of God My defense By my side As I rest Breath of God Fall upon Bring me peace Bring me